I also really believe in, you know, people spend so much time trying to control sound and tweak sound, and yet most sound is already tweaked. In other words, you know, the more wrong the room is, the more it is going to have a sound. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, you just have to go with it and make that part of the sound. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. Sending your music to be mastered can be scary, but sending your music to a total stranger for mastering can be really scary. Chris Graham is a billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer with thousands of credits and knows how to make your record sound fantastic. But more importantly, he understands that there is one person that really knows what a great record sounds like, and that's you, rock stars. So if you're thinking about hiring professional mastering, but not sure if it's right for you, go to chrisgrammastering.com and get a free sample mastering of your song. Go find out just how great your record can sound at chrisgrammastering.com. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, the show I created to introduce you to real-world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Ian Brennan, a Grammy-winning producer who's produced four Grammy-nominated albums and published four books, while all the while teaching violence prevention around the world since 1993. He's written a fascinating book called How Music Dies or Lives that shares his deep understanding of music culture and recording music all over the world, but particularly the continent of Africa. And on episode 38 of Recording Studio Rockstars, Ian joined us to tell us all about his book and field recording music in general. However, since our last interview, Ian has also released two more remarkable records and agreed to join us again on Recording Studio Rockstars to tell us about his experience, play some examples, and talk about the process of recording them. The first record is called Tanzania Albinism Collective, and I'll read from Ian's own description here. In the summer of 2016, I and my wife, Italian-Rwandan filmmaker and photographer Marlena Deli, traveled to northern Tanzania. The resulting album features individuals who've never played instruments or written songs previously. Those born with albinism are among the most persecuted people in Africa. Due to assaults, rapes, and murders, many have been relocated for their own protection by the Tanzanian government to Ukarewe Island, one of the most remote places on Earth. Traditionally, the albinism community has been discouraged from singing, even during many church services. The resulting album features individuals who have never played instruments or written songs previously. And the second record, Abatwa, the Pygmy, Why Did We Stop Growing Tall, is a collection of recordings from a remote part of Rwanda. Quote, an area so very isolated, it was as if the genocide had never ended. 
The Abatwa Pygmy Tribe is identified as one of the most marginalized, voiceless, and endangered populations in Africa. In fact, their name is frequently taken in vain as a slur towards unrelated others, close quote. In true form, Ian Brennan finds voiceless peoples of the world and uses recording and technology to bring their voices loud and clear to us, grabbing the attention of national media and the Grammys along the way. Please welcome back Ian Brennan to Recording Studio Rockstars. Ian, are you ready to rock? Hey. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm ready. Thank you so much. That was a very kind uh, intro. Oh, you're Thank welcome, you. man. Um, you know, it's hard to actually even figure out how to really tell your story. I think you're the most qualified to tell it. But it's fascinating to witness some of the stuff you're doing and listen to this music and honestly, even just getting to understand places like, you know, where exactly is Tanzania, where exactly is Rwanda on the map, using Google Maps, it felt uh, just a little bit out of context, but it felt like quite an adventure just sort of trying to find these places that you've been to, like the island in the middle of this lake that's as big as the Great Lakes here in America. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, this idea, I think it's easy to fall into it because it simplifies the world seemingly for us that there are small countries is a false one, but it, but it's understandable. But nonetheless, you know, Tanzania is bigger than Texas and uh, yeah. Ukurewe Island is uh, has a population that is around 350,000 people. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, That's almost very, as much as, uh, um, is it Montana? <laughs> is it Montana? Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly a lot of medium sized cities like in the UK and some in the U S are, are, are around that number. And, um, you know, so it, it, yet I've talked to after the fact, talked to quite a few news correspondents whose job it is to cover that, that district, either Southern or central or Eastern Africa and was just shocked that none of them had ever even heard of uh, Ukurewe. So, I mean, it is isolated, if not physically, then then just in terms of media. It's just kind of ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm thinking of Wyoming, not Montana. I apologize for that. But seeing Ukurewe on the map, it's just this big, giant lake. And I sort of wondered, what is, what's it like there along the banks of this huge lake? I mean, if I'm thinking of Lake Michigan, of course, there are cities and towns and roadways but is this remote and sort of very jungle or is it very populated? Well, I mean, it's the population is big, but it's a big island. So the city is a village that's the port city and it's only maybe 5,000 people within five minutes of it. If you're driving, you're clear of the, the, the city boundary. There is no official boundary. And from then on, most of the rest of the island is just small postage stamp farms throughout. So it's, it's the people are spread about, but, but in total, it ends up being a lot of folks and, hmm. you know, it's beautiful. I mean, the, uh, it's a very rocky area, the Southern part of the lake. And, um, there's, you know, just teeming with, with bird life in a way that, that I think in many ways is striking. I'm not, I'm not a bird enthusiast, but, but when you look up at a tree and you see, you know, five or 10 different birds and, and many of the same species, even large birds hanging out in the same tree, you realize, well, this must be relatively untouched compared to most cities, you know, most places that yeah. we're used to. Well, so um, Ian, give us a brief introduction of who you are again, and then uh, tell us how these two records came about, or I guess we could start with the one. Let's start with the one in Ukarewe and the, the Tanzanian Albinism Collective. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've been making records, uh, for over 30 years and, uh, I, I'm, I learned through failure by making really bad records. And I started doing field recording in San Francisco in the nineties. And that equipped me with the ability to, you know, realize that, that, that it wasn't as hard as it necessarily was made out to be if you just kept it simple. And I have no choice but to do that because I'm not really an engineer and, I, and I, I'm not the best engineer by any stretch and don't even want to be, you know, my, my interest is more in songs and, and emotion and, and, uh, performance. And, uh, that led very easily then uh, unexpectedly to the ability to go to other countries and, and, you know, record there because I already had this experience of recording outdoors and in the field and in live settings with bands in San Francisco for more than five years. And so um, were you recording live stages and that sort of thing in San Francisco? I did a weekly show for free in a laundromat for five years and uh, exactly five years. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I, I got a lot of experience, you know, dealing with just ambient noise and, and a variety of bands from yeah. entirely acoustic to full on electronic to, you know, and all the, with the free show, you know, there was no security. So random people stumbling in. It was in a laundromat, you know, yeah. people come in there to get coffee, people come in there to get, to do their laundry, uh, homeless people that might be attracted by the crowd or the noise, you know, all that stuff. And, and what I found is that, you know, it's possible to record under most circumstances, even those that are not optimal. And so that led to maybe a greater ease when we started venturing out. And our original venture, Marlena and I, my wife's uh, original venture was to go to Rwanda. She's Italian Rwandan and her mother is from Rwanda and survived three genocides there. And we returned with her for the first time uh, that she visited in over 30 years to reunite with a friend that she thought had been killed and been told had been killed in the most recent genocide, the big one wow. uh, that people identify in 1994. And in fact, she was still alive. So we went back and Marlena did a documentary about it called Rwanda Mama, which is really, really beautiful documentary. And, and while we were there, we wanted to look for music uh, in general and also for the documentary. And so that kind of started us on this trajectory. And it, it was more difficult than we anticipated to find music that we felt was suitable to record. We almost came up empty handed. We were there for more than two weeks. And it was only in the final days that we, that we met and, and, and began to work with the good ones, uh, who we've gone on to do two records with. And that, that started this process of, of really being interested whenever possible to venture out into the world and, and try to meet folks from underrepresented regions. And even more importantly, from underrepresented populations within the regions, because even when underheard regions are heard from, it's usually from the 1% and every, country, no matter how impoverished economically it may be, it's got its 1%. It's got its upper class. And, and they tend to control the narrative, whether that's America or whether that's Malawi. And, and so that led us to most recently, as you were mentioning, the Tanzania Albinism Collective, because the, those with albinism in uh, Tanzania are persecuted in ways that are unthinkable, really raped and mutilated and hunted for their body parts and sometimes tortured while alive and socially ostracized. And, and so we were, we were interested in, in hearing from them and, and, uh, we, you know, it was, it's always a leap of faith, but we, we just figured, you know, they must have things they want to express. And those things 
would almost undoubtedly have value to the listener. And we were rewarded beyond all expectations. Yeah, what uh, that's just kind of hard to fathom. I mean, the stuff you described going on over there. I know living here in the middle of America, I, I can hardly imagine the human atrocities have happened over there and, and happened repeatedly, you know. But to sort of stay on the, the recording topic for just a moment, you had learned how to do this stuff in San Francisco. You had this opportunity to go to other parts of the world and record people. Where are you living now? I believe you're in Italy. Is that right? Yeah, we're based in Italy. Uh, we're we're pretty transient, but we have a, a place where we can leave our stuff, an apartment here. And then we're able to, fortunate enough to, you know, travel to America to make money for the projects that we then travel around the world to do that in general lose money. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you describe to us a little bit of the process of going to Ukarewe and you know, to go do this recording for the first time? Can you sort of tell the story of going there? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these things, it took years to really come to fruition. And and sometimes these things segue into something else or metamorphosize. And in this case, we were lucky enough to hook up with the Standing Voice Organization, which is a, a charitable organization that serves the albinism population in Tanzania. So they were you know, it took them a while to warm up to the idea, but but over time we developed a relationship. And, and so they did outreach to the community and discovered that on the island there were there were a handful of people from the albinism community that were interested in trying their hand at, at songwriting and trying their hand at playing music. So we were in a bit of a different situation than we often are. And that is that we, we were able to go into it knowing that at least there were some folks we could record that the the uphill battle was that they were entirely folks, except for one guy who's only on one song. They were entirely folks that had never, ever played instruments before, never written before, never sung publicly before, were discouraged from dancing. And we didn't discover till we got there that they were actually actively discouraged from singing even in church. Wow. And that, that's usually because they were not taken to church. So even if their families kept them, which a lot of them are, are abandoned by their families, often they were hidden in shame. And so they weren't brought out in public. They weren't brought, you know, to church or to the marketplace. And, and as a result of that, they, they didn't even have an opportunity to participate. Wow. You know, this seems so poignant to this concept of divisionism. And I feel at a kind of a terrible with words here and describing this stuff, but I know how I feel about it. But, you know, this process of sort of splitting us up and factioning, you know, the human race or races and separating everybody, that's really felt strongly right here in this country right now. And I, I love the fact that you're out there venturing out into the world to try and, you know, bring it all back together. So I applaud that for sure. Living in Italy, is this something that you feel that you're really feeling the effects of what's going on, you know, back here in the U.S.? And what does it mean to be sort of halfway between the U.S. and and uh, the heart of Africa there? Well, you know, I think that in general, it's a cliche, but I think in general, Europe, because of the physical closeness to Eastern Europe and Asia and Africa, has a, a more, you know, invested interest in, in the outcomes there. And uh, also often views it differently because, you know, you can be in North Africa in a matter of two or three hours, you know, but by, by air. And, um, you know, 
I think racism is a problem everywhere. It's never gone away. It probably never will entirely. It's based on ignorance. Hate is based on ignorance. And the only antidote to that is, you know, information, but not not so much, I think, intellectual information, but just relationships, getting to know people and, yeah. and understanding them and not fearing them. And it's it's easy to hide behind borders. It's understandable. And here in Italy, you know, th- the challenge is, is that with greater integration, well, the fear goes up. You know, I mean, America has been dealing with this since it's before its inception, you know, because of, you know, all the folks brought there involuntarily um, and all the in- individuals immigrating from all over the world. You know, we've been dealing with this not necessarily well, but but trying to for, for a long time out of necessity, particularly in cities like New York or Los Angeles. Um, in a lot of the countries, you know, Italy being one of them, uh, it's a new challenge. It's a new challenge. It's, it's a far different thing for an individual to welcome, you know, w- one person or one family of diversity into a town versus seeing the town change. And the change is obviously good it, it, on a pragmatic level, it, on an economic level. It's even, you know, welcome should be, you know, uh, but obviously emotionally for people, it's a new challenge. And so more than people may realize, you know, here there are problems with rising fascism and and racism of different sorts as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's everywhere. Well, again, I, I don't feel terribly qualified to speak eloquently about the topic other than to say that, you know, I consider everybody everywhere to be a brother of one sort or another. And so, I'm far more inclined to want to be inclusive and reach out and get to know my neighbors. In fact, that's in my very microcosmic neighborhood here. That's always been my policy whenever there's anything that I don't understand and I am even scared of. I have a tendency to try and just break down the barriers and get to know my neighbors. So that's my attitude towards it. I don't know if I can speak about it any more eloquently than that. No, that's that's eloquent. I mean, I think that's that's brave and courageous and ultimately necessary, really, for survival is is is, you know, there's this idea that we live in an individuated way. But in reality, we depend on each other and we depend on a lot of people we never even meet or see, you know, that, yeah. that, that you know, build our highways and and, uh, you know, help us if if we fall ill and, you know, all, all these elements that oftentimes people are in denial of, but they remain the reality. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in one way, somebody with a recording studio trying to help local musicians come in and make their records, you know, they're helping a local community find their voice and, and create music and speak out to the world. And again, you know, you've, you've reached way outside of your local community and gone across the world to try and find people, record their music and help it reach the world. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I want to push you a little bit more towards painting the picture for us of what it actually is like to even travel from where you are to this remote island. And then I want you to tell us about doing the Abatwa Pygmy record as well in Rwanda. And then I think we will skip the jam session on this podcast interview, but we'll just to kind of take a break and we're coming in rock stars. We're going to play you a bunch of actual recording examples. This is this is going to be a premiere for us on Recording Studio Rockstars, but we're going to play you examples of the music Ian has recorded and give Ian a chance to tell us the story behind recording each one of these those pieces. So to back up again, paint the picture of what it means to sort of travel from where you are 
deep into the heart of Africa to this remote island? Well, I mean, it's uh, a three-day journey from Europe, from America. That would be a four or five-day journey each way. One of the days being the ferry ride, which is four hours plus. I think, you know, always traveling with equipment arouses increasing suspicion from airport security. Part of probably the advantage of me not being the best engineer in the world is that I don't fetishize or care about equipment as much as some people. And in a sense, that's liberating because I, I go into projects kind of accepting and knowing that that something's going to get broken. <laughs> you know, something's not probably already going to be broken by the time I get there and not work the way I want it to. And, you know, if, if nothing else, having a skill set that's more about just just uh, survival, which I guess is more of probably, you know, a live sound type of, uh, uh, you know, work ethic as opposed to a traditional recording ethic where you're under a deadline. You got, you got to make it work. You got to figure out a way to do it, whether that's the sun going down or the, or the police are coming to shut you down, you know, or the neighbors, or if you just only have a couple hours of somebody and you're never going to see them again. You know, in the case of Ukurewe with the albinism community, we had the luxury of being there for almost two weeks and to work with them daily. And uh, so, you know, we were able to record a whole lot of stuff and that gave us certainly a much greater cushion than we would normally have where we might be setting up by the road with somebody just for a couple hours. If I recall correctly, did you tell me on the last episode that one of the tools you like to bring is duct tape? Yeah, duct tape for me is 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 critical. And again, it's 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 an issue because you can't carry it. You have to remember to put it in the check-in luggage, otherwise they'll take it from you. And without it, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, I mean, with a lot of equipment and also duct tape has a way of deglamorizing equipment. And I, I, I don't think that that's a bad thing when you're when you're dealing with, uh, mm. you know, people that you're meeting for the first time, especially if they're non-musicians, but also, you know, any kind of governmental body. I think it's 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 good for them to not, you know, look at what you have and, and, and be fearful of it, that, you know, it might be something other or something more. Yeah. Especially with journalists being targeted and journalists being feared increasingly uh, again in this era. I imagine that there must be times where you guys are fearful for your lives or fearful for your safety in the places you've traveled. Do you have any stories you'd like to share about that experience and and getting through with this equipment? Well, I mean, you know, we've been really lucky, knock on wood. And and I'm not, you know, I, I think the big thing is you just have to remain vigilant because we don't know where the danger may be. I, I've been in some yeah. gnarly, gnarly, gnarly situations in America more than almost anywhere else in my life. And partially that's because I'm an American and, and partially that's because America is a very violent place statistically. I've also run into trouble in places I wouldn't have expected it. You know, one of the only places I was ever detained was Amsterdam airport, you know, Netherlands. Hmm. There's kind of that American cliche that, you know, they're liberal and, and pot is legal and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I had a very negative experience yet. I've been through that airport. Uh, I don't know, you know, more than a dozen times. And most of the times it's been fine. So I think we just don't necessarily know, but we've been, we've been really, really fortunate. And I think that that's a reflection on the fact that most people in the world are good folks. They're not violent. They're not sadistic. They don't have bad intention towards other people. And, uh, and you mean everybody wants to eat, breathe, sleep, and, and have children and raise their family. 
I think so. I think, I think, you know, I think that most people want nothing more than to have life be as peaceful and easy as it can be. And, and, uh, and I also think most people, and this goes back to my days working in locked psychiatric facilities that, that most people treat you the way you treat them. You know, there are those people that are very discouraging because they, they don't respond appropriately or commensurately. And I think those are the ones that people tend to get tripped up by sometimes, you know, they're focused on that individual, like, why aren't they nice when I'm nice to them? Well, you know, because that's the way they are. Right. And we're not going to change them. But the majority of people on the planet, even people that maybe have criminal histories, I've found that if you treat them with respect, they'll treat you with respect. And that's not to discount that they might be a dangerous individual in a given, you know, environment or, or situation. But I think that, you know, starting with healthy, balanced, reasonable optimism and equity is, is not a bad place to start usually. All right. So now you've made it into this remote place and you've brought these people together who've never played and, and never written songs together before. Did you start out by giving them an environment to work on writing music first, or did you just immediately start setting up equipment? Again, I apologize, but you really got to paint the picture for us. Make it, we really don't, can hardly imagine what it's like for you, you know? Yeah, well, no, I mean, we we were, again, because we had the assistance of the Standing Voice organization and, and they recruited, not recruited, but, you know, put feelers out. And, and so the people that were involved were interested, maybe even committed to doing this and had met weekly and we sent instruments ahead. But what we didn't know is that they were so intimidated by the instruments that they had not touched them and the entire time. They just wow. sat there once, once they had arrived. You know, that made the task a little bit more daunting. In a way, it was probably better to not know that in advance because it would have been, you know, so potentially discouraging. But, you know, we just asked them if each of them would would agree from that point forward to take an instrument home. And with the agreement that if they took it home, they would return the next day with at least one song, you know, nice. at least one, hopefully talk more about, than one. Talk about going into a recording session and finding out the band hasn't been rehearsing or doing pre-productions. <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that they had been getting together and what they were rehearsing. And I think this is always the thing with 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 communication and with, with art and relationships is is mind reading. You know, they, they were trying to give us what they thought we wanted, even though we told them what we wanted in very explicit terms. It was just hard for them to believe that that's what we really wanted, yeah. you know, that we really wanted to hear them write songs about whatever they wanted to write about and to be truthful and to not try to be slick or polished just to communicate. So what they've been practicing was, you know, the one guy who had musical experience had kind of been enculturating them all to choir singing and, you know, this very formal way. And, and, and so the first order of business really was to get him the, out of the way. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. it's like, like, you know, this is, this is, there's no leaders here. This is a democracy and, and uh, you will be listened to equally with the other folks here, but you gotta, you gotta not interfere with their, with their creativity and their process. And in the end from 20 people, he only has one song on the record and it's at the very end and it's less than a minute long. And, and a lot of other folks have two or three songs and, it, it wasn't a conscious decision. That's just the result of, of the process, the result yeah. of, of what came forth from these individuals' lives and from their experience and, and, and who was communicating in, in what way. Well, I mean, in the titles of, of the songs, and I apologize if I'm mixing it up because I've got a couple of records that we're going to talk about here. So if I, if I cross 
reference anything. Uh, I apologize in advance, but I mean, great titles like I Am a Human Being, Forward Motion at Last, Once I Was Abandoned, We Live in Danger, you know, just just amazing songs like Who Will Take Care of My Children? And there was another one I remember called I Will Follow You Until You Kill Me. Yeah, there's 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 some pretty pretty amazing songs. I mean, the interesting thing about the Tanzania Albinism Collective songs was that, you know, we told them to write about whatever they wanted to write about. And so they 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 did and it was leading up to the UN holiday, which is uh, International Albinism Awareness Day. So they started writing songs about that day. And then it was like, no, you don't have to write songs about that day. You can write songs about anything in your experience. So then they began to write about, you know, their day-to-day experience in their life. And the only direction they were ever given beyond that was that very deep into the process, one of the people from the charity said, you know, you don't have to write all negative songs because that's what was coming out. But, but, but in fact, that, that was their experience. So far wow. from encouraging them to write about sadness or about, about the obstacles they face, that was just quite naturally what, what came forward. And, and, and the more that I've gotten to know them and, and, you know, now the relationship has been over a year with many of them. And we just brought them to WOMAD recently in the UK and spent time with four of the core members. You know, the more that I, we understand why that is, because the stories are just, they're just, uh, you know, uh, breath, breathtaking in, in a very, uh, in a, in a very sad way, you know, yeah. uh, you know, with the, what, what they've experienced. Well, so let's jump over now for a moment and talk about the Abatwa record. Tell us about that one. This is, uh, it's not too far from Tanzania. I mean, oh, maybe it is, maybe it just looked like it was not too far on the map, but, um, I could see how maybe these would be on, I don't know if they were done on the same trip, but I could see how you might go from one place to another on a, on a trip. Tell us about this other record, the Why Did We Stop Growing Tall, the Pygmy record. Yeah, um, the Abatwa are, are another extremely persecuted group, like, like so much the planet now. Anybody that's nomadic is, is seen as trouble. You know, corporations don't like it. Governments don't like it. They like people to be orderly and to stay in their place. And also, most nomadic people tend to occupy land that that has resources of some sort. And, and in the case of the abattoir, that's largely forest and jungle. And, and so many of them now have been kind of forced onto uh, reservations, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, into villages, designated villages. And uh, they still oftentimes are, are mistreated or, or persecuted, not so violently usually as, as with the albinism community, but certainly socially, it is used as a slur by many people still to this day mm-hmm. as a way to put somebody down um, by literally looking down at them because they are physically smaller. You know, we went to the border of, of Burundi and Rwanda and, and their territory spreads, you know, in other countries as well. And Rwanda does share a border with Tanzania, but the distance you know, in reality is massive, you know, it to is, get yeah. from one place to the uh, another. And also that particular distance is, is a quite dangerous one to travel over land. We tend to uh, try to do projects separately. It's not the most practical thing, but we did the project in Vietnam. And then a year later, we did the project in Cambodia. It would have been a lot <laughs> better, you know, on a practical level to have done them as one. But but uh, we try to keep the, them separate in terms of energy and focus. Yeah. Um, and so this was a separate trip. And again, this project is made up 
largely of, of formerly non-musicians, but it's an interesting mix because it's traditional musicians playing traditional instruments. One is a one string instrument. One is an 11 string instrument. And then people from the village just improvising. And I think it's interesting because I, I think that the songs all are uh, of great value and, and, it would, and for people to try to, do, to decipher which is which without thinking in terms of instrumentation, I think might be difficult. I, I think if people are just thinking in terms of what songs strike them, they would probably, as often as not, probably gravitate towards some of the music by the non-musicians, formerly non-musicians. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly some remarkable recordings that we're about to play and stuff that sonically sounds incredible too. Um, Things, examples that I heard and I thought, man, how would I do that even in the studio? So it's going to be fun to talk about that. Just to kind of help us out too, if somebody's not familiar where Rwanda and Tanzania are. Can you describe it just sort of in the big picture of the continent? Well, they're both uh, settling down toward in the center, a southern center. So they do share a border. The, the eastern border of Rwanda is the western border of Tanzania. Tanzania is much, much, much bigger physically, you know, being, as I said before, bigger than Texas, um, literally. And, and Tanzania goes all the way to the um, eastern coast as well. Yeah. Yeah. The capital is on the coast. It, it also shares a border to the south of Malawi, a country where we you know, did the Malawi Mouse Boys and also the Zomba Prison Project records. But again, I mean, it's 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 really far away and much further than it ever looks on the map, because, you know, traveling across a lot of these roads is is slow going, you know. I don't know. Wasn't that far, man? All I did was zoom out and zoom back in again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing to this day. If I look at Ukurewe Island, it, it looks like you're just going to hop in a boat and be there in 30 minutes. But well, it almost looked like it was connected to the land, like you just go across a land bridge there. It is very close to the land on the one side, but that land is extremely isolated. So that's yeah. why everybody comes across the water because yeah. because counterintuitively it, it's the the easier way. All right, so when you described going into Rwanda to find this isolated um, nomadic community, you had a pretty amazing description of getting there and and you know like you were accompanied by a couple of guards I think or something like that. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, we weren't accompanied by guards, we were accompanied by friends who were Rwandan and one was the driver, one was the translator and you know, they began to get a little bit worried in some of the places we were because the stability is a little less like, mm -hmm. like a lot of border areas, you know, there's more fluctuation and, and the neighboring country to the South Burundi where they inter, you know, they, they share this, this history politically between the tribes that were at war with the genocides. So the violence has been on both sides of the border at different times and kind of ricocheted you know, they began to get a little bit uncomfortable, especially as we would go up some of these mountain roads, the more remote villages. And, and it was certainly, uh, you know, one of the times that, that we were met with the greatest hostility in some of the villages where people were not having it, you know, they weren't interested. Right. Um, but, but, you know, fortunately we, we met folks that were quite the opposite people that really, really, really wanted to play music. And, and, and it turned out we're, you know, amazing what some of them had to offer. Now, when you were on this trip, were you headed somewhere where they already were expecting you or were you finding new people to record music along the way at each stop or, or tell us about that? It was both. Um, the, uh, the villages uh, in Burundi and in Rwanda were, were on the fly 
And like a lot of these things, you know, one contact leads to another. So we went to one village that seemed very promising and, 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 and it was not, you know, uh, and then we, but through that process, we were able to meet other folks and kind of got led to other villages where there happened to be just more talents, I guess, for lack of a better term. I really believe in this idea that, that everybody's musical, but it is a continuum, you know, and sometimes you, you meet folks that just have, you know, a more evident uh, ability or at least mm-hmm. are more prolific. Yeah. Continuum as in it's even passed from generation to generation and there's more music to grow up around. Well, no, I mean, I think continuum just in terms of ability, like, you know, I mean, it's not that the guy that was so hyped up in one village that we went to with, with great hopes that that would be that it wasn't just that he was pretty abysmal. Um, he, he still had musical ability, but it, it just wasn't as resonant as some of the other folks that we happened upon that had never even played music before, at least in a performance setting and, and were, were incredible in in a lot of cases. Well, so, um, tell us a little bit about like when you show up on the site and you're going to record, what's, you know, what do you, do you open up the back of a van and start pulling out mic stands? I mean, what's that like for you? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of, of knowing that stuff is going to get broken, knowing that things aren't going to work, knowing that there's the potential for things to get stolen, though, again, knock on wood, it's never happened. But but the more folks that are around, the more likely that can occur. I mean, the, the, a lot of it, I think, really is about surrendering and improvising. If you open up the back of a car or a van and, and people are helping you and grabbing stuff, I mean, y- you really have to let go, you know, because it's like it's it's you just hope that that stuff gets to where it's supposed to get and that, you know, you're able to, to do what you're there to do. And, and so, you know, in the case of the Abattoir record, it was, it was quite chaotic in a lot of cases when you enter a village, you know, yeah, um, you know, and, 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 you know, in that situation, a lot of the recording occurred, you know, with a large audience, which is not my preference, but we had a huge audience of children. So a lot of coughing and a lot of crying and, and, and just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people there that might, you know, influence for better or for worse, the performers, whereas the village that one of the villages that we gone to where we had high hopes and turned out to be, you know, uh, in a, a place that we weren't going to get much from was the opposite. I mean, it was a situation where getting out of there was a little bit hairy, you know, because people were not happy that we were, <laughs> that we were leaving, um, you know, in relative haste, you know, when we kind of got a sense that, that, that it wasn't the best use of our time or their time either. Oh, wow. Uh, I imagine, like, I can picture a scenario where you're, somebody who's new to this idea of field recording or something could be, you know, unloading the stuff and be nervous, you know, wanting to be embracing and and, and feeling welcomed on the other hand, feeling a little nervous that some of your stuff's going to disappear. So I imagine that's something you're just used to at this point. Yeah, I mean, and I think also, you know, a long time ago, Kevin Army, who's a great, you know, East Bay punk producer that I learned so much from, you know, he always said you can make a record out of just SM57s and 58s. That's, you know, potentially. And, yeah. and, and I found that as the equipment has improved, you know, and become more valuable, some of it, and uh, nonetheless, UAB stuff for people. And a lot of times they can't tell what was indoors, what was outdoors, what was a good mic, what was a bad mic, even, even really experienced people I've often found, you know, are not necessarily so easily able to decipher as they, as they think they might be. Yeah. So, you know, I, I try to bring as good a stuff as I can, but at the same time, 
you know, I, I try not to, to fetishize the equipment too much and certainly not to have it interfere with the process, which I think human energy is the greatest resource in these situations. It's the most precious because it's, it's so volatile. It's, 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 it's so scarce really, you know, it, it can be there one moment and gone the next. Yeah. Well, give us a brief introduction again to some of the typical gear that you bring with you to record with. I mean, are you, is this like a laptop and you're recording on Pro Tools like we're used to here? I know you've talked about this in the previous episode, but give us a, a brief reintroduction to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to bring closed systems, battery operated always, closed systems. So, you know, things like Zoom and Tascam, you know, six tracks or eight tracks. I don't like to use a laptop. I don't like to put all my eggs in one basket. So I keep it as simple as possible. I use a couple of battery operated preamps occasionally for some of the more prominent lead vocals or if it's a solo artist for the acoustic guitar and and voice. And then I've got a, you know, a pretty a pretty good range of mics, you know, SM7s and 58s and 57s and and uh, you know, I've I've got a Neumann condenser and anything that can be powered with phantom power is is potentially usable and mm-hmm. um, I'm not too afraid of condensers uh, you know, in the sense that I, I don't, again, I don't think that they're necessarily as fragile as, as they're made out to be, you know, um, yeah. the, you know, I think that people fear them more, fear that, you know, their the fragility more than maybe they should. Well, um, rock stars, you may have been hearing that one of our sponsors on the show is Roswell Pro Audio, and they make some, you know, to me are, are quite beautiful condenser microphones, solid and well-built. And I couldn't help wondering if, how would, you know, would one of those do on the road? What are some of the things the factors as far as a condenser might go that you really have to watch out for if you're going to go do field recording? Well, I mean, I think the biggest uh, obstacle in outdoor recording is going to be wind, you know, so the transient noises can be a problem, though oftentimes they're masked quite naturally, you know, whether that's a hammer in the background or whether that's, you know, a horn or, or a mic uh, or broken glass, I should say. But uh, wind is is probably the one thing that that is almost impossible to get around. And, and so cert- certainly, you know, wide diaphragms, I love them and I use them as much as possible. But uh, you know, they increase the risk of that and and condensers as well. But but I I think that in the end, the sensitivity is is what you want. And um, you know, I'm I'm a big believer. In, in transparency and I'm trying to achieve intimacy in recording. And, and so I really, I really like things to be as close to the source as possible, you yeah. know, right up on it, right up on it whenever possible. So what are some ways that you deal with wind? You, you show up and you can tell it it's a little windy or it's intermittent. That's probably even worse where you get rolling and then all of a sudden the breeze picks up. How do you handle stuff like that? Well, I mean, I think you, you, in an ideal setting, you try to have your back to some sort of wall or, or maybe even, uh, you know, a corner, you know, so you're outdoors, but you're shielded to some degree. Sometimes there's just nothing you can do about it. Sometimes it's an insurmountable and sometimes you just have to wait for it to die down. When uh, we were in uh, Cambodia, we, we were lucky because Kong Nai, who's, you know, very famous retired musician agreed kind of reluctantly, but agreed at the last minute that he would record with us. And so we drove all the way down. He lives in the South down by the, uh, you know, the ocean there, uh, to record with us. And we we didn't have a lot of time with him and, and, uh, it was horribly windy and we were out on his back porch and it was picturesque. It was great. It was looking out over the rice fields and, 
and everything. But, you know, he's, he's plays what, what people oftentimes equate with blues music and he's looking out over this rural agricultural area, but, but we couldn't record there. So we went in his house and we couldn't record there because it was, it was, you know, way too boomy and, and, you know, it was, it was, uh, fairly thin walled and high ceiling. So we, we ended up recording and we were lucky in this case, we ended up recording in the back of, uh, in the back of the van. He just flipped open the back of the van and had him sitting there. And, you know, it was something that we couldn't have done with, with, a with a band, but with a solo guy, we were able to do it and, and it worked, you know, there's maybe one or two instances during the recording that, that we, you know, were battling wind again, but in general, there's none present. Yeah. So a couple of takeaways from that one is, I noticed you didn't start out by saying, oh, you have to get the such and such, you know, uh, furry wind cover. Um, although I imagine, you know, maybe there are some good wind covers. But um, two is that, uh, you know, your solution was to go inside a van where you're just kind of blocking the wind in just the right way. It's sort of like shadowing the wind so it doesn't hit the mic. And then another was hearing you go inside a space and recognize that it wasn't going to work because it was too boomy. Is that something that you've just grown accustomed to and you just, you, your ear just picks up on it right away? Or do you have to have him play in the space for a little bit and kind of check it out each time? Well, I mean, I think you, it depends on what's being played. A lot of it is how continuous the music is itself. You know, is it somebody that's using a lot of space in their music and it's dense or is it somebody that there's a lot of, you know, spareness, but yeah, I think it's usually evident pretty quickly in general. I like outdoors because it's, it's for the most part dead. You don't get reflection. I yeah. mean, you get a little re reflection off the ground, but it's dead. But I also really believe in, in, you know, people spend so much time trying to control sound and tweak sound. And yet most sound is already tweaked. In other words, you know, the more, you know, wrong the room is, the more it is going to have a sound. Mm -hmm. And so in some, some cases, you just have to go with it and make that part of the sound. You know, I mean, I, I try to be consistent with the records to really put the vocals up front. So they're like whispering in your ear and to make things very transparent and intimate, but you know, they are going to be colored sometimes by the environment. And, and sometimes that is a room that that's going to, you know, have a, a certain color or, or more reflection. But, you know, if, if I, if I have my choice, I'm always going to want to be outdoors, which is just as dead an environment as there can be as long as there isn't wind around. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think we forget that when we're in the studio. And every time I take either a microphone outdoors and record something, it's remarkable how dead th that is and how, in a way, isolated it can be. And also taking a speaker outside and playing music back without walls around it, it's remarkable how flat a speaker can be. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, so let me ask you about condenser mics again. You know, for example, the Roswell Delphos that I have here is switchable. I can do a cardioid pickup pattern or an Omni. How often do you find switchable pickup patterns to be useful with a condenser mic when you're field recording? You know, I mean, I think they are useful, but but I really, because of the idea of multi-tracking and, and close miking things rather than trying to get stereo or or or, you know, room mics, I mean, occasionally I'll throw up a room mic, you know, I, I, I use the term loosely, meaning, you know, a, a general mic, maybe outdoors. But for me, I mean, I'm not usually going to be using an Omni pattern. I'm usually going to want it, it, you know, as close to its source as possible. Right. And usually what I want whenever possible is, 
it's easier, obviously, with solo or duo or the fewer the members is I want as much redundancy as possible, you know, so that, you know, two or three vocal mics and two or three guitar mics and, you know, and, and to have as much difference between the mics as possible, not only in positioning, but but also in terms of the colors they might they, they might provide. So that gives options later, you know, not well, only for so sonic options. Let's say that again. So you're saying like if you're recording one voice or one instrument, you might put more than one mic on that one voice or that instrument? Yeah, if possible. I mean, it's a luxury, but whenever possible. And it's not it's not just for for options and mixing. It's for options and editing, you know, where mm-hmm. if you got a mic pop on one, you might not have it on the other, you know. And so you might be able to, uh, you know, A, B it for, you know, uh, you know, punch in one mic for one word or one syllable. And that's the kind of thing I think a lot of people are unwilling or afraid to do, you know, because, you know, if you're listening on headphones really carefully and you know it's about to happen, you might hear that difference. But in general, it's not going to be hurt. And, yeah. and, it, and, and it can really... It can really, you know, I just think that options are good to have. But again, the bigger the group, the less options there's gonna, there, there are going to be. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just the nature of it. You know, and I try to record at the same time on as few tracks as possible. You know, I'm not necessarily going to use, even if I bring out a six track or an eight track recorder, I'm not necessarily going to use all of them. You know, I'm, I'll use as many as I need to, but I'm always going to use more than I need. You know, just because to not do so would be kind of, you know, tempting fate, I think, a little bit too much. Yeah. You've gone quite a long distance to do this recording. You might as well get as much of it as you can, you know. Uh, but yeah. it, it yeah. makes me think of the studio, too. So an initial thought is the times where I'm recording a drum set, I'm like, oh, let's put up another mic. Let's put up another mic. And you run into that place where you're like, you know, you you think you're supposed to use all of them. And then that doesn't sound good. And then you feel, you know, deflated a little bit. But I like the way you're talking about it, where you know, let's say this was a drum set back in my studio. It's saying, hey, record with as much as you can get away with right then because you don't have to use them all at once. You might just decide that for this section of the song, you want to cut over to this different sound. Or, you know, when you're field recording, you literally might just have a mic not do what you expected it to do. And this backup mic does the trick. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, with, uh, you know, solo recording in particular, not so much a general mic or a room mic, but sometimes for one certain song, nobody probably knows why, something about the dynamics of it and something about the, you know, the, the, the attack and approach of it. Sometimes you, you just turn off all the mics but one and it just gives this great sound. And so the mix is one mic. You know, you've got eight mics to choose from on one person and you end up just mixing the whole thing off of one mic. And, and it sounds better if you're willing to, to step away from kind of the, the preconceptions and, and the attachment and the ego of it, it's like, well, no, this is, let, let, let's see it for what it is, that, that it's actually, this is truly more striking, um, even though it shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It's not supposed to be, um, but, but it is, you know, in some cases. Now, am I remembering this correctly, that maybe last time we interviewed, you talked about recording a mic onto one track at full volume and another onto another track at, 20 dB down or something? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes I, I, I do that. I mean, certainly, you know, part of being old school is that tendency to want to really record everything hot. And, and that's a hard thing for me to, to fight. You know, I like seeing things go into the red, but, you know, it's certainly better in the digital era to, to, 
to back off of that a little bit, you know, because it's likely to cause more problems than not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice to have, if, if, if there's the option to have something recorded, you know, really low because, you know, the, the likelihood that there's going to be those, those cl- the clipping or problems otherwise is less. And, and again, you just have some backup. You have some insurance. Yeah. And I, I, if I recall correctly, I feel like my Tascam DR40 might do something like that. I don't quite know how I do that with my Pro Tools in the studio, but it's a cool concept that says, you know, if there was an option to split your input from the microphone somehow and record hot on one track, but back it way down and give yourself lots of headroom on another track, then particularly in a live performance or a place where you, it's, you know, there's the likelihood of unpredictable dynamic in the recording that could really save your ass somewhere down the road. Yeah, exactly. So we're about to take a break and then we'll come back in for uh, our new version of the jam session, which is going to be actually <laughs> listening to your recordings and talking about them. But I do have one more question for you. And that is, you know, hearing you talk about the process and really wanting to capture the moment and the energy. What about you makes you good at that? You know, for example, are you a great smiler? Do you make everybody in the room feel really at ease, you know, when, when you're about to show up with this stuff that looks like you came from another planet and record them in the, in the village square? Or, you know, what about you makes you good at, at producing and recording these field recordings? Oh, I don't know if I am good at it. You know, I mean, I, I certainly try. Um, but I, for me, I try not to think about myself at all. You know, I try to, to be invisible to the process. Um, I try to be other centered. That's something that I generally try to do in everyday life. Um, not to the point of being a martyr, but just, just that is where I tend to put my focus. Um, I tend to be more of a listener than a speaker in, in most environments, yet I've made my living for the last 24 years speaking, you know, public speaking. So, you know, it's, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure what, what it might be, but I do know that out of necessity in working in psychiatric emergency rooms to make ends meet when I was a teenager and in my 20s and in my 30s, um, I was forced to be able to develop almost instant intimacy with people that were coming in in crisis because my job was they walked in the door and I'm supposed to talk to them about whether they're suicidal, homicidal, whether they're hearing voices, whether they're having problems with addiction. And, and, and so, you know, I guess maybe a, I, I kind of had an aptitude, uh, for that. And then B, um, I, I suppose if you do that all the time, you know, for a living for years and years and years on end, you probably, maybe have a, have a facility that, that, that is not necessarily different than anybody else, but maybe it's just something that doesn't normally occur in social situations, you know? So, so maybe I'm able to shift into more of a objective goal oriented way of relating to people that at the same time is not threatening, you know, you know, or intimidating in a lot of cases. I don't know. I like to think that I have that skill too, although I know I can also intimidate people and sometimes I have to recover from it a little bit, help, help bring them back to the session, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we have to be sensitive to what, what, what may or may not be intimidating to other people. It's hard. It's hard to kind of understand what other people's perspective is, but you know, I talked about it for a bit earlier, but I, I think, you know, this idea of mind reading trying to not make assumptions as much as possible and, and trying to ask questions and be curious and just want to hear from people can help lead the way, you know, as opposed to kind of heading down the wrong trail. And the flip side of that that I was talking about earlier is a lot of artists lead me down the wrong trail because they're trying to read my mind. 
and, and it doesn't matter how much I tell them that I want to hear them play badly and I want to hear, you know, like the worst songs they have and to not care and make mistakes. It takes a while for people to process that and really own it and believe it. Um, and some people can't. Some people can't let go of that control, particularly those that are the most practiced. Right. You know, it's a lot easier instruction for somebody that maybe doesn't consider themselves a musician. And I think that's why sometimes a lot of these striking recordings do come from the people that are, you know, first timers, so to speak, that are really, you know, just, just starting from scratch. Well, rock stars, we're going to take a break here and we'll come back in, in a moment for the jam session. We're going to play you some of these striking recordings and give Ian a chance to talk about each one and, and tell us a little bit of the story behind recording that. And I, I want to remind you that you will find links to all the stuff we're talking about here in the show notes, which you can go to rsrockstars.com. Just search Ian Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N. We've got two episodes on there. The first one we did was episode 38, where he talks about writing his book, How Music Dies or Lives, and um, doing the uh, Malawi Boys recordings and just a bunch of remarkable stuff. And then this episode as well. Also, we'll include links to some of these beautiful documentary videos that his wife, Marlene Adeli, has shot of the travels and of the recording process. And we'll be right back in just a moment for the jam session. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299 or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Are you having trouble getting your mixes to sound professional? Are you mixing and mastering yourself? Did you know that the vast majority of the world's best mix engineers almost never master their own mixes? So if you're thinking about hiring a professional mastering engineer, check out Chris Graham Mastering. Chris is a billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer who has mastered thousands of songs for both professional and home studio clients just like you. Send one of your songs to Chris and he'll master a sample of your song for free. If you decide to hire him, you can also get a free video mix consultation before mastering to help you get the most out of your mix. To learn more, check out chrisgrammastering.com or just click the link in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, we're back at Recording Studio Rockstars. We're about to jump into the jam session. My guest today is Ian Brennan, who's brought us a couple of amazing records, the Tanzania Albinism Collective and Abatwa, the Pygmy, Why Did We Stop Growing Tall? Two amazing collections of field recordings where he and his wife have traveled deep into the heart of Africa and recorded people, who, some of whom have never sung or played together. We're going to play some examples of these recordings and give Ian a chance to tell us the story behind each one and, and tell us more about it. Ian, are you ready to jam? 
Yeah, let's do it. All right, dude. I thank you for uh, setting this new ground here with the jam session on recording Studio Rockstars. Like I said, this is the first time we've ever played music on the show. So uh, I'm going to jump right in here. The first one I've got queued up, um, we'll see how long all this takes, but this is one called I Am a Human Being. And I'm going to let you tell us which record that's from and, and tell the story around it. And I'll play this first, and then, then we'll go into the recording of it. Excellent. Hawakujua kuwa mimi ni binadamu kama wao walinijima haki zangu za msingi Hawakujua kuwa mimi ni binadamu kama wao walinijima haki zangu za msingi Jamani niliumia moyoni Hawakujua kuwa mimi what a wonderful sound, man. Beautiful voices. Yeah, the voices are very true, very true, unlike probably anything else you'll hear anywhere, really. Well, tell us the story behind that recording. Well, that's one of the many recordings from Tanzania Albinism Collective. Uh, it was sung by primarily by Christina Wagalu, who wrote it, along with uh, two other members, a man and a woman from the collective. And we used a lot of live looping where they were basically singing to themselves and experimenting because of the the lack of instrumentation in a lot of cases, uh, being non-musicians, we decided to go in a, in a experimental direction. And I think the results sometimes are, are really surprising and astounding and never to be duplicated again in some cases because yeah. it was, it was, it was done live, but it was interesting on the song because at the end there's a detuned bass and, and there's the feedback and, uh, the only negative review that this record received, it's received really really amazing, great reviews uh, so far from all over the world. And uh, the negative review is from this this world music kind of gatekeeper. And he, he thought that the feedback was something that had been done in air and had not been edited out. <laughs> I, thought ah, that, I thought that was so revealing because it's like, um, I guess the guy had never even, you know, gotten past uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and Monterey Pop because it's like feedback is an aesthetic. Nice. Can't. I like it. Well, and it also kind of reminds us of this um, sort of typical, I don't know if Western is the right word, but studio aesthetic, which just says, you know, we're, we should be controlling everything. Nothing should get past us by accident, you know? Right, right. Exactly. exactly. Uh, well, so now what about, so so I hear the voices layering over the top, the, these these really cool harmonies and layering effects. That's not multiple singers. That's Christina layering herself somehow. It's two singers uh, being looped and then a third male singer joining them at the end. Okay. And now what tool did you have with you to allow you to do this kind of layering effect and all that? How, how did you pull this off in the middle of nowhere? You, did you even have an extension cord plugged into the wall, for example? Uh, no, no. Everything's done battery operated. So I just had a little battery operated loop pedal and, uh, you know, just would, would experiment. Just, you know, it had, it had reverse, it had half speed, you know, things we could play with and, 
And so a lot of these songs were, were born out of improvisation and a lot of them were born out of, of longer improvisation. So the finished song might, might've, you know, been something that arose, you know, five minutes in or 10 minutes in, you know, where things began to congeal and, you know, kind of the, the skeleton or the core of it, you know, made itself evident. All right. So now I got to keep digging into the details because this is recording studio rock stars and we want to know, you know, the recording part. So you had a microphone hooked up that was then going through a loop pedal. What, what was the loop pedal? I'm going to have to look up even what that loop pedal was because I buy these d- devices. And again, with the with the battery operated pedals, I usually buy things that are quite cheap yeah. um, and just experiment with them. So I'm I'm trying to, I'll have to look it up. Oh, I don't sorry. even remember. If, I can see it, but I don't even know which pedal it was. It's not an expensive pedal. Okay, it's, cool. It's not, if it's we, not a $600 uh, pedal. It's like a $100 pedal. If we come up with it later, we'll throw it in the show notes. Um, but let's still talk about, I bet you can still visualize how you hooked it up. So what sort of microphone was she singing into? Um, well, with a lot of the loop stuff, I would use a 58. And, and with a lot of the people that were, were uh we're, you know, singing for the first time. Um, it's it's oftentimes better to hand them a microphone that they can hold. Uh, and so for this record, as well as the Abattoir record, you know, a well duct tape cord with a SM58, you know, with a windscreen on it oftentimes is is the best thing. So okay. for most of the, the most of the looping, that's what you're hearing. Meanwhile, you know, the 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 phantom you know microphone the browner is sitting there unused you know because it's it, it, it you know didn't necessarily serve the purpose at that time. So um, you've got a SM58. You duct tape the cable on so that there's no goofiness with the cable getting knocked around. And then is that going through some sort of um, impedance transformer so that you can go into a pedal, or do you go to a mic pre first that has a quarter inch out so that you can go through a, a looping guitar pedal, or or how does something like that work? No, no, just just have an adapter, a quarter inch, put it in, and have an adapter coming out and take it right back out. You know that that's that's it. And then does that go straight into your recording device, and then sh- and you would yep. all be listening in on headphones, or were you using an amplifier yeah, in the room or something? It'd be split, and and one uh, channel would go to a little battery operated amp, and the other channel would go right to the recording, and and I would record the amp too, just. For the heck of it, you know, just so, to have it. So the singers would hear their voices on the amp, not on a pair of headphones? Right. Yeah, I don't believe in using headphones whenever possible. Okay, um, awesome. Someone, well, you I, I, you got to forgive me digging into this stuff, but this is the stuff <laughs> I'm dying to know, and I know everybody else no, is no, too. No, 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 no. It's, it's great. It's great. Um, no, I mean, I, I rarely use headphones. I'm actually doing a project this month, later this month, in, in France where we are going to use headphones kind of have to, because we're going to have to isolate a loud guitar amp, but in general, you know, and and that's fine. But in general, I, 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 whenever possible, I prefer to not use them. I prefer to, to have people listen to themselves in the room and the people around them and, and, you know, to not be too affected by the, by, you know, wanting the sound to be a certain way, you know, to literally be up in their heads. Okay, so now would all of that, um, now what other microphones are being used? How are you recording the, the male voices and the feedback at the end? The uh, male voice in this case was, was recorded with the, uh, I think with the EV RE20 and, and um, the other vocal is probably the 451. Um, you know, I mean, basically it's just a bunch of mics set up around the room. Um, on this record, a lot of it, as well as the Abattoir record, a lot of it was just the handheld SM58. 
And, uh, but, but nonetheless, there's, you know, mics around on stands that can be, that can be arranged. And in, in some cases, like I said, maybe putting, you know, two or three mics on, on the vocal, you know, as close as possible and, and, uh, you know, having those options. Okay. So then all these mics are just XLR cables going into, uh, um, you know, a zoom recorder with six XLR inputs or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Just going right in, except sometimes, sometimes running it through, if it's a lead vocal, sometimes running it through, uh, some MP1, uh, portable battery operated preamps. But but not usually, not usually, just just in some cases to warm up the vocal a little bit. Okay, okay, cool. And yeah, I remember from last time. I think the MP1 was the uh, portable battery powered mic preamp. That's uh, your preference of choice for field recording, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the really the only that that's battery operated that's uh, that's of that quality. And uh, but in general, I like to leave the sound alone and, and just you know have it be what it is, and then later, you know, focus on trying to refine it even more. Cool. So last question about that one. What we heard was them rehearsing how to loop it and how to build it up and end with distortion. And that was all just one performance that was recorded directly onto the recorder. Since no headphones, nobody's doing overdubs. Right. No overdubs. All right. No cool. overdubs. No overdubs on any of these records. No overdubs on almost any record I do. Even most of the records in the studio, even if headphones are used, which almost never you know, do, do we use them? Even if they are very rarely are there overdubs. And if so, very few. Very, okay. Very, awesome. Very few. Well, that's going to answer, that's going to prevent me from asking you on every single recording, <laughs> whether you did any overdubs or used headphones. All right. So let's yeah. jump into the next one. This, this one is called forward motion at last. Let me start it over here. Yeah. So first of all, that totally makes me just thinking of working on the railroad, just like hammering rail spikes or something. Right, right. And it's got this incredible reverb on it. And I forgot to ask you about reverb on the last recording, but tell us about this one. And, um, you know, what, what did this come from? Uh, that, yeah, I mean, you have very, uh, insightful ears. That's a sledgehammer and, uh, on concrete and the reverb you hear is the reverb that was there. That's what wow. you hear. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what you're hearing. And, and on the last song as well. So that's amazing. So these spaces, um, did you look for the space for the song or did you let the song sort of evolve from the space that you were in? Yeah, I mean, there's some adaptation, there's some moving around, but in general, like I said, that rather than trying to tweak sound, I, I really firmly believe that it's already tweaked and to, you know, follow that path that, that already is there. And so, I mean, yeah, it's an incredible reverb. I mean, if you're banging a sledgehammer on a, on a large concrete surface, you know, which this was, this is probably, you know, uh, close to 20 by 20, it, it, it reverberates. Wow. Well, what's the meaning behind the song? So forward motion at last. Do you know sort of the story behind this, this particular song and, and who was the artist? Yeah, this is uh, Florentine uh, from The Collective and Florentina. And it's one of the positive songs on the record. I mean, she's, she's speaking about the fact that, you know, as, as they form this community and banded together, how they 
feel that there's been some progress made in overcoming some of the the, the bias towards them and 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 the prejudices and and also to uh, promote solidarity and 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 also therefore a greater sense of safety, if not truly a greater sense of safety for the people in the community there. That's cool, and I like that because the nature of some of these songs and certainly you know, African music that I'm familiar with, it's meant to be a communal music. So it doesn't necessarily have a beginning, middle or end. It's just, it's just going for a while. I like that you have a record where not only do you have the fade out, but you have the fade in too. And that's just as legit. Yeah. Yeah. I understand people's opposition to fade outs and fade ins, but at the same time, I think uh, they can really give a sense of the eternal, which a lot of this music in this case they're telling a story collectively. It truly is a collective. It's amazing how much their stories, you know, intersect and kind of uh, correspond and, and complement one another. I mean, the, the overall message is quite sad, but nonetheless, it's very real. Their experiences have been, have been uh, you know, not isolated. They've, they've had consistently bad experiences and, and have been subjected to, you know, ongoing prejudice. Yeah. And, um, you know, just with respect to chant music in general, and I'm, I'm using that term for lack of a better one, but, you know, and essentially meaning a group of people just playing together and you just sort of repeat something. Rock stars, I don't know how you personally feel about drum circles, but if you feel bad about drum circles, I encourage you to go try one again. Because every time I've ever really sat down and um, done anything that was sort of a drum circle uh, which I guess would be, you know, the closest thing I've got to a, a group chant around here. It's there's something that happens when you just lose yourself in it for a little while, and it's just really cool. You know, there was a thing happening here in East Nashville for a while when my daughter was little, and I'd take her to that. And you know, kids at first be like, yeah, I don't want to do that, and then then next thing you do, you, you know, you turn over and look at them, and they're lost in it, and they're just trying stuff out. It's a cool experience. It's kind of like jamming with your band, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's it has a lot to do with that idea of surrendering. Yeah, and, and how yeah. important and how how that's undervalued in a culture that emphasizes winning so much in instances where it isn't even a competition usually. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so here's the next one. This one is called "Standing Voices." Once I was abandoned. Stand by. So very cool. First of all, where do I get that distortion pedal and that guitar sound? Because I want it for my next record. <laughs> yeah, that's just a little. That's just a little uh, knockoff Marshall battery-operated amp. That's about you know has a speaker that's about five inches big. Yeah. And uh, this song was by uh, Ayub, who was the only person on the record that had previous experience, and he's a better guitar player than I am, but. In the end, you know, his songs are, are not really featured on the record with the exception of this one song. And, and it became a communal song that, 
you know, he'd written a song that was kind of staid and, and, and formal. And then at the end, he cut free. And when he did, other people just started joining in. And that ended up being the, really the, 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 the most beautiful aspect of, of the entire tune, you know, that went on for 10 minutes or something. Yeah. And so, um, and then what about the, you know, why does it conjure up images of Shanana for me? You know, what's the connection between that kind of American 50s rock and roll greasers sound and what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, it's indirect. I mean, there, there's kind of this this tendency to believe that everything is linear and everything emanates from from us, so to speak. And and, you know, a lot of that is true when we're looking at popular music and popular culture, especially, you know, popular music coming from the south of America, you know, uh, uh, deep south of America. But it's also true that a lot of times there's just, you know, parallel invention. People are playing stuff that is similar and it, it, it in no way has a, a relationship or if it does, it's a very, very indirect, like maybe secondhand, you know, misinterpreted, you know, badly rendered blues that somebody heard that then their uncle passed on to them. You know, it's not hmm. like they s- sat and studied, uh, you know, how, you know, Bob Dylan made a, a record. Yeah. Well, I guess it's just the human voice when it goes up into that falsetto like that and something about the way it all came together. Well, that's cool, man. So here's another one. And this one is really poignant, particularly with what's going on uh, right here in the United States this this week, actually. This next one is called White African Power, We Live in Danger. So stand by and I'm going to play you this one. That's a powerful sound. Yeah, I mean that is the largest uh, group collaboration on the record. It involves almost every single person from the record, and they're playing tabletops and and a beer bottle and and a sledgehammer and a, and and they're using this large broken rain barrel that's you know takes four or five people to encircle it, you know, holding hands, and is taller than than you know the average person and. They're using a broom and the guy rapping, the main guy rapping on the song is, is a leader in their community who was, you know, really opposed to participating musically, but was there because he's a leader and he finally uh, was inspired to jump in. And, and I think what he did is, is incredible. And know? this is from the, that was from the Tanzania collective. Yeah. That's from the Tanzania albinism collective. Okay, great. And so just rockstar as a reminder 
that these are people that, you know, have been told not to sing, not to play music, persecuted. Literally, as you pointed out, some of them have had body parts stolen from them. Is that really true? Yeah, it is true. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things that some of the charitable organizations have done is is to provide, you know, artificial limbs, uh, new you know, limbs for people that have had their arms or hands chopped off. And, and, and as horrific as that sounds, it's, it's very real. Um, why would somebody truly, do, I mean, what is there, why is somebody doing that? Well, there's, there's a myth that's spread by way of the witch doctors that the parts were valuable and it's overstated usually, but you know, the belief is that a lot of money can be made. And also that is tied in with a, a belief that, Sometimes that there's gold in the bones, you know, all, all this stuff that gets spread to kind of, you know, incite wow. this fear and hatred and, 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 and also, you know, just people, desperate people taking actions they would not normally take. Yeah, that's just horrible stuff. And it's, it's crazy because some of the language around that, you know, the mysticism is also, mysticism can be... Uh, kind of a fun thing in and around music and rock and roll and all this, but obviously that's not the right use of it. Right. Let's let's talk about um, the recording of that one. So it's got this incredible sound in the beginning where you've got the voice and just powerful with the reverb, and then all of a sudden people are just banging the shit out of stuff. How did you record that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like. I mean, it was, it was a thing that, that, that was, took on a life of its own and, and, you know, just had a bunch of mics set up and had to just start positioning mics in anticipation and then continue to adjust to get some kind of, you know, coverage for the, for, for the critical elements like the broom and the sledgehammer and, and the water barrel and, and, uh, you know, and then obviously the vocals. Um, and again, it comes back to handing somebody the mic. I think when, it, when they're when they're holding a mic, a lot of times the SM58, it connects them, you know, it, it connects them literally, you know, they feel it, you know, they feel that they're doing something and gives them something to do with their hands even, you know, yeah. as opposed to standing in front of a microphone where they are, are maybe self-conscious. Do you go through much of a process of mixing this music when you get it back or when it's just a raw recording, you know, is the vocal sort of like, way down at one level and the banging is way at a different level and you really have to put it all together? Or is it pretty easy to sort of balance a level on these faders and, and arrive at something that sounds like what we just heard? I think it depends on, on how, how uh, you know, far down, you know, the rabbit hole you want to go. I mean, it, there is a lot of mixing. It, more than anything else, there's a lot of editing and there's a lot of post-production just in terms of, of, of sorting through. I mean, in the case of Zomba Prison, the first record, we had over six hours worth of music. In the case of this project, I think it's closer to 20 hours worth of music. So, I mean, it's a lot of music just to go through. And yeah. and a lot of it is is kind of self-evident at the time, you know, where you want to put your attention. But but sometimes that's deceptive. You know, what what, what seemed to work sometimes in the cold light of day or in, in retrospect does not. And sometimes other things that were missed come out, you know, and you realize, oh, that's, that was great, you know, or that was good. And I, I, at the time I didn't even register. So now who is the team that is helping to sort through this and, and make decisions about it? Is it you and your wife, or do you find that you have an extension beyond your core group that helps you bounce things off people in the cold light of day and, and get feedback and sort of become aware of what's working and what's not working? 
Well, Marlena uh, handles all the photos and video and I do the audio and, and uh, I've been lucky enough to work with good folks and I've learned a lot from them. I mentioned Kevin Army before, who I've known since the 80s and, and I've learned so much from as an engineer and producer. And, and uh, you know, David Odlum mixes most of these records. He's an amazing engineer and, and he's the one who mixed the Tenerawan record that we won the Grammy for. And I've been really blessed to work with John Golden uh, doing the mastering, most of the mastering I've done since 1987. And, you know, every time I talk with a man, I learn something, you know, and, and, and to this day. So, you know, I mean, it, we do most of it ourselves, but there's some great people that help us make it even better. Very cool. Well, they're doing a great job. All right. So let's keep jumping forward. We got a couple more to listen to. Oh, you know, before we do that, I'm sorry. Would you like to comment on the title of the last one? Uh, that one was called White African Power, We Live in Danger. Is there anything you'd like to share about that? Well, it was born out of that very song. It was born out of that improvisation. And obviously there's a lot of irony there. It's, it's very poignant that they're asserting power as people that have been literally forced to hide and ostracized and locked in rooms in some cases by their families. And, uh, you know, they, they are oftentimes regarded as white hmm. and, uh, even though they are African. And so there, there's, you know, I think there's dissonance there. And I think that dissonance is good is to get people to stop and think about just how stupid hatred and prejudice really are when we expose them. Well, and I think I just exposed myself too, cause, uh, in a classic way, I misinterpreted the title initially. I was thinking sort of South African, you know, white power in Africa, and right. I, I missed the point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's probably easy to do, but I think the dissonance is good. It causes people to to, to reflect, and, and, yeah. and it's hard to get people to even focus and reflect these days and not reach, you know, snap judgments as opposed to kind of looking at things more deeply and, and being challenged by them and maybe even learning. Yeah, well, fascinating. Well, thank you for telling the story behind that, too. Okay, so here is, uh, we've got a couple more. This one is called Anzoro, and it's the Bells remix, and I'll play a little bit of it from the start, and you can tell us all about this one. It's pretty cool stuff. Hang tight. So um, being a secret closet DJ, I have a, a real appreciation for, you know, <laughs> something that is a remix. And I, I like the, um, you know, adding new elements as, as it goes along there. It's cool stuff. Uh, tell us the story of that recording. Did that also come from the Tanzania Collective or was that a different one? This comes from Wyo, which was a record we did with a group in South Sudan during its first year of existence. It's the youngest nation in the world. And Sadly, uh, you know, they, they, they've almost had no peace since it's their inception and, and there's a real humanitarian crisis there currently. And this was the recording of a 10-foot xylophone that requires five people to play it. 
at any one time. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. I think, you know, like the, the, the heart of the village is considered to be this instrument. It's so big. It can't really be moved without being dismantled. And it sits in the, the center of the village. And this was another one of those situations, uh, you know, because it's a village as opposed to an individual or, or a duo or a trio or a quartet where, you know, the interaction is a little bit hairier, you know, cause you're dealing with 30, 40, 50, a hundred people versus two people, you know, right. so it's, 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 it's a lot more, uh, dynamic, let's say. But, you can't but, but guide the, the session. The session guides you. Yeah. 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 But the, but the, but the results were great. Yeah. And then what, what sort of prompted you to create a, a remix around it? Was it just, are you, do you have, are you a secret DJ as well? Oh, probably. I mean, not really, but certainly, uh, you know, it, I find it interesting to, you know, I like sound. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Well, so let's go to the last one here and uh, we will close it out. So this one is called just Song 13 from Rwanda. Play this one. Okay.
First of all, you got to love a musician who does a manual fade at the end of a song, <laughs> especially on the tambourine and the drums, yeah. right? I, I uh, thank you guys for letting me play that one in its entirety. That's the last song of the podcast. And I, I just thought it was such a great piece that I, I wanted to just play the whole thing for you. Tell us the, I mean, it's such a lovely pop song. That's the kind of song that I feel like singing and playing with my band, you know? And I know we all have our own personal preferences for music styles and everything, but there's some things really remarkable about that. Tell us the story behind that recording and that song and, and who was that that we just heard? That's uh, from the Good Ones from Rwanda that very appropriately were the first group we ever did rec uh, field recording with in Rwanda. And that's from their second album. And you're very astute to point out because, you know, I think Adrian Kazagira, who's the main songwriter, is one of the great roots writers in the world. And, and I think of Nashville often or Brooklyn when I think of him and that if he was singing in English and he was in Nashville or Silver Lake or Brooklyn, I think he'd be very very revered and, and known in, in, in those circles. But, you know, unfortunately, in a sense, he's uh, singing in Kenya Rwanda and, and gets kind of put in the world music pile when, in fact, I think his songs are, are really, really great, great universal songbook folk songs. Yeah. And, uh, and, and knowing him is just, he's a poet. Knowing him's just uh, been nothing but, but beautiful. We've known him now for almost 10 years. Do you know that particular song well enough to tell us what that was about? Well, like almost all his songs, it's a love song. It's a song called Angerike, which is a woman's name. And uh, one of the beautiful things about their group, there's two really nice things addition, in addition to the music. Number one is that they, through friendship, not by design, reunite the three tri tribes of Rwanda, the, the Tutsi, the Hutu, and the Abatwa. But beyond that is that you know, especially with the first record, which we did in 2009, the songs were almost entirely love songs. You know, these are guys that survived the war, survived the genocide, lost family members, witnessed horrific things. And, and at the tail end of it, what they chose to write about is, is about love. So the, um, the group do, itself is made up of members of each of these tribes? Yeah. I mean, in, in, now in Rwanda, the focus is on being a Rwandan you know, to not talk about tribes. But mm -hmm. in reality, they, they do come from these three different tribes. That's great. What a great story. That's something that music has just done for as long as it's been around. It's, it has the ability it, to unite people. Uh, it really does. I mean, obviously, it can be used for negative as well. But in general, I think it's used for, for good. Yeah, I think that's a great thought to just go out on, rock stars, just reminding ourselves that all the effort we put into creating music, recording music, it's worth thinking about what the reason is. What, what are we doing it for? And, um, you know, because it's very powerful and it can do a lot of good and a lot of positive. And I also want to comment, just because I can't help going back to the geeky technical stuff, but hearing that recording and knowing that you record without headphones and hearing the difference between the chorus and the very ending where it's intimate and quiet and how the voices just tonally, they hold together all the way through and the pitch of the harmonies holds together perfectly against the guitar and everything. And even the level of the drums being played seems appropriate throughout the song. I think that's a takeaway from doing sessions without headphones. 
Right, right. Yeah, they really have to listen to each other. And that's what they're used to doing. I think it's really important to record people however they are accustomed to playing. If they sit down normally, they should sit down. If they stand up normally, which I would encourage to be physical, they should stand up. If they face each other normally, they should face each other and not be, you know, two rooms away, unable to see one another. Nice. Well, I think that's a great note to close out on. Ian, thank you so much again for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. This was a lot of fun to just go into the actual music and talk about how you did all this stuff. And uh, again, I thank you for going out and bringing all this music back to us from remote places in the world and just helping people with what you do with music and life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's my honor. And, and thank you for having me on the show again. Um, and Rockstars, I'll remind you that we will include links to all this stuff right in the show notes. I'll include links also to Marlena's video documentaries, clips from YouTube. So you can check that out there. If you're on your iPhone right now, you can just click through and we should have some links. It'll take you right to the blog post. And if you want to search it, just go to rsrockstars.com. Use the little search magnifying glass icon and search for Ian Brennan. and It'll bring you right to the blog post. Ian, let our listeners know how they can find you and reach out to you and uh, follow you or go, go buy these records. Uh, I'm at ianbrennan.com and the records are available through all the, all the places, you know, whether that's Amoeba or Spotify or iTunes or Amazon. And, and we've had the good fortune to work with a lot of great labels, but we, we do, are doing a lot of records currently with Glitterbeat in uh, Slovenia, Germany, who are an amazing world music label and Six Degrees Records in San Francisco, who are celebrating their 20th year and, and uh, right now and, and did the Zomba Prison Project records, as well as the Tanzania Albinism Collective record, amongst others. Why don't you go ahead and just give us a short list of records you'd like us to go buy right now on the podcast, and we'll include those in the show notes. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the current ones, the Tanzania Albinism Collective is a great record. Um, both the Zomba Prison Project records complement each other well. And Abattoir the Pygmy is uh, Why Did We Stop Growing Tall, I think is, is a very nice and interesting record. That's on Glitterbeat. Um, and the good ones, I, I, I would advise both their first and second record. They're both, they're both quite, quite beautiful. And then uh, Rockstars, also remember to go pick up Ian's book, How Music Dies or Lives. It's a wonderful exploration of music, the process of making music, the process of recording music. And Ian, thank you again for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. All thank the way you from, so much. From Italy. I had an yeah. espresso here as we started, but I suspect that yours is better over there. Uh, maybe, maybe. Depends. <laughs> maybe. All right. <laughs> Well, good to talk to you again, man. Thanks so much. And I uh, look forward to seeing you around the studio, meeting you in person. Awesome. Awesome. All right, dude. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.